Welcome to Happy Talks with Dr. Alice and Donovan. Dr. Alice Fong is a holistic, naturopathic doctor and founder of Amour de Soi Wellness. And Donovan Jensen is a software engineer and founder of HowToHappy.com. Together, they're out to cause more happiness in the world. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Happy Talks. My name is Dr. Alice, and this is my amazing co-host, Donovan. And today we have a special guest, Lane Kawaaka. And he is known as the real estate anti-guru of adding tremendous giveaway value. Uh, he currently owns 6,500 units. He's a writer for Forbes and he's been on top 50 investing podcasts and has an amazing Amazon bestseller. So please welcome Lane. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Aloha, yes. everybody. Aloha. Yes. So yeah, tell us a little about your story into becoming an investor into real estate and, and your, your passion for it. Yeah. So I, you know, I grew up on this linear path, you know, my, you know, we weren't broke, but we weren't super rich as kids. Um, we were taught to be really frugal with our money, mm. you know, go to a restaurant, never order soft drinks. Cause that's just costs <laughs> yeah. too much money. Um, and go to school, study hard, be a good little boy and girl and uh, work at a job for 40 to 50 years, buy a house to live in, invest in all that normal 401k type of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, became an engineer because that's what you do, I guess, or some kind of high paid <laughs> yeah. profession, right? right? That's all we're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And I started to work and, you know, again, so good with my money, right? Like a lot of my clients were, were good savers. Um, mm -hmm. We're not in credit card debt or any of that type of stuff. Um, I was able to buy a house to live in right after college, a couple of years, saved up, you know, 80 grand down payment on a $350,000 house in Seattle. And because I was working on the road all the time for work, because I was, a, you know, in construction as an engineer, I was never home. And, you know, for a young 20 something year old kid, that was a lot of, um, it's kind of silly to have this big house and never yeah, home. And, you know, back then. <laughs> They didn't have like tour or anything like that, but I don't know where I got the idea. I was like, oh, I'll just call up an old like property manager that I rented mm -hmm. from in college and just start renting it out. And that was the point where I kind of pivoted off of that linear path. And I was mm -hmm. like, whoa, what did I just do here? I could just rent this property out. And if I just repeated this several more times, I'll be pretty quickly out of this rat race we all called job work and retirement savings. And that was kind of the start of it all, um, you know, started to realize that a lot of people out there make way more returns, a lot safer, not investing in the normal Wall Street traditional investments and get into more alternative investments, which include residential real estate or re rental properties. So it's a really interesting story, you know, like kind of this evolution from a more like tried and true traditional path to uh, this more real estate focus. I did have a question around sort of, you know, you said your your background, your upbringing had sort of a, a, a frugal frame on it, right? And I'm curious if you ran into any struggles around sort of buying property and as you expanded getting into, because, you know, you need a lot of debt to be able to finance this stuff. So I'm just curious if you had any any struggles there around like um, sort of that, that background and adding debt as you added on more properties or if the cash flow and the numbers was enough to make you just be like, no, nope, doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of got into it. I kind of fell into it, right? Like I saw the cash flow coming in, 
And the reason why you invest in residential real estate is you make money four ways, cash flow, mm -hmm. um, appreciation, and tax benefits. And the fact that the game changer is, you know, I mean, buying a house to live in is okay. But when you buy residential real estate, the tenants are the suckers paying down your mortgage for you. When you're, when it's your house, you're the sucker putting in your heart, sweat and tear paying that thing down. And that's mm -hmm. the big difference. They're paying down your mortgage and building your equity for you. And that's the game changer. Um, but then, you know, there's, there's different paradigms of financial advice. People out there are credit card debt, really bad with their money, which is mm -hmm. call them the 99% out of there. Um, for those types of people, I think that, you know, they can't differentiate between good debt and debt, bad debt. They're all in credit card debt. They buy crap that they can't afford, that they shouldn't have in the first place. Now, for those types of people, buying a house to live in is a good horse piggy bank because they have to pay their mortgage. It kicks them out on the street and evicts them or they get foreclosed on. So, but then, you know, there are, what about people like myself, right? The good little boys and girls out there that, you know, got good jobs. We pay our more than our fair share of taxes, right? The middle class are the ones paying all the taxes. It's not the wealthy people. We kind of get into that, how the wealthy people get around taxes. It's not the broke people, the poor people, right? They just get all the government entitlements. It's kind of this hardworking suckers in the middle, right? That I kind of got grew up in. And that was kind of my linear path. And those are the people that kind of power society forward. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just kind of saw it like, you know, like my, my, at the end of the day, like it's your network. That's all that really matters. Right. Sophisticated, high network people don't really care about the interest rate you're paying or the amount of debt. That's what average people think of. Average people will really never get above one or $2 million net worth. Mm -hmm. But the wealthy people look at, well, how is this impacting my net worth? And can I do this safely and prudently, which is, can I go into investments that give me ample cash flow, right? Because cash flow allows you to breathe and hold on to the asset in bad times. So you want to maximize your amount of impact to your net worth while optimizing your amount of cash flow, right? Just enough to get the optimal returns. But I mean, I've written a bunch of articles and Forbes on this topic of debt, right? People can't seem to differentiate between good debt and bad debt, but that's what the wealthy do. They, they use debt where, you know, the, the debt service coverage ratio, 1.25 is what we usually try and hit at our large apartment complexes. The mm -hmm. income that we make more than hits and covers the, the monthly debt service. We make money every single month. Right. Yeah. No, I, I really appreciate that you distinguish the difference between good debt and bad debt, because I think for a lot of people, that's not even something that crosses their mind. It's like something to take into consideration. I actually had bought my first house about five years ago. And initially I, I was just planning to, to live in it. But then similarly, like you, I, I was traveling a lot and I decided to just rent it out for Airbnb while I traveled and that paid for my mortgage. And, or sometimes <laughs> I would just like have it listed. And then I was like, oh, someone booked it. So I get to go see something else or I get to travel somewhere new because, um, but then eventually I moved across the country and I just, just decided to find a family to rent it long-term. And um, I just 
sold it actually last year. So, and made a profit. So it's definitely, you know, it wasn't necessarily my intention, but, uh, life circumstances, um, had it went through a breakup and things like that, that had me not live in it. So, but I, I would be curious for people who, you know, they do need another place to live. Like I, I could actually stay with, you know, friends or family or had other circumstances that made it more doable to not live in my own house. But how would you suggest like people that don't have any other well place to go, if they wanted to rent out their house, what, what should they do? I mean, look, this is the hardest part about wealth yeah. building, right? That first hundred grand of net yeah. worth. Um, most of my clients, you know, they make six figures. They have a net worth of over a million dollars net worth. They've kind of passed that scale. Right. It's kind of a coming of age. It's like mm-hmm. wealth building adolescence. If you don't have, you know, you need money to invest. If you don't have money, that that's what these more active strategies like house flipping, wholesaling, mm-hmm. you know, those are kind of more strategies for broke people right? Like most of my folks went to college were good savers. We can just patiently save and buy and acquire these passive income generators or what we call pigs. Mm -hmm. So I mean, continuing on my story, you know, I bought that first rental and I was like, oh shoot, this worked. So what does that guy do? But keep buying some more. So I mean, took me, the first one I bought was 2009. And then 2015, I had 11 of these rental properties and just kept rolling along with this but you know once you own a few rental properties you start to realize they're not really scalable and that was kind of where the next pivot that happened for me when I started to interact with more accredited high net worth investors and a lot of the message that these guys had was you don't want to own rental properties you know that's how you get yourself unbroke you know Mm -hmm. above half a million million dollars net worth but once you ascend to that point it's more about taxes, legal protection, and scaling your investments in different private placements and syndications mm. where you're doing value add, real estate investing. So it sounds like you're you're you you've laid out like a couple different steps, right? Potential steps on on like a financial ladder. I would be curious for you as you've sort of gone through these steps, where your biggest um, you know headaches or roadblocks or learnings or whatever else were, right? Because like, you know, the, the, the typical path, the, the first step that you sort of mentioned is fairly straightforward, right? You go to school in some sort of field that allows you to get a pretty good salary uh, and then you do your job. Um, but I'd be curious, you know, where you've seen some of the like biggest learnings or roadblocks or whatever else might be worth sharing between some of those tiers. Right, right. So like, you know, kind of to break it down, there's kind of three different levels, right? Simple passive cash flow 0.0 is don't be a bonehead with your money. Right? Don't buy things you don't need. Keep a freaking budget. You know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I mean, the people, I think the people who are listening on the podcast are usually a little bit better at this, right? But like I said, most people struggle with this because, you know, their, their parents didn't teach them this stuff. I mean, where else do we get our money models from but our parents and family and friends? But, you know, once you're able to save $10,000, $30,000 a year, right, the first step is to go buy a rental property. You know, there are turnkey rentals out there and to invest prudently, you want to invest in things that cash flow. And how do you do that? Well, you know, we look for this one thing called the 1% rent to value ratio or greater. So you, it's pretty simple, like, you know, math exercise. So you take the monthly rent divided by the purchase price and we're looking for something that's 1% or higher so that we know we're going to be cash flow positive every month. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is why we don't buy properties in Seattle, Portland, all of California, New York, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, you'd be lucky to find, find a place in the ghetto for 500 grand that yeah. luckily rents for two, 200, um, 2,500 a month. Mm-hmm. So 2,500 a month divided by 500,000 is half a percent, right? Mm-hmm. Where the other places in the country which have much better ratios where you can get closer to that 1%. And this is where you're making money every single month. So if a recession comes, you're cool. You're just cash flowing. You're chilling, right? Where everybody else is losing the property, can't pay, has to feed their debt service. Um, and then, you know, we, we focus in on red states because you know, we, we're the landlords. We want the landlord laws on our side. Mm-hmm. You know, this is why we don't invest in the blue states. And then typically we'll invest population growth areas, which are typically your Sunbelt states on the Southern and the United States is mm-hmm. kind of our, our rough regret. Are you going in more like metropolitan areas or more like country, rural or? Kind yeah. Of so the, the, the markets that we'll go in, we want to go into established cities, right? Mm-hmm. So I try, I try to stay above a quarter million, half a million population. So no hold on tertiary markets, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. That said, we're not going to go snuck dab in the core business district, right? Because right. you're not going to hit the rent to value ratios mm-hmm. that you need in there. Mm-hmm. So we're typically around like the outer rim of the city. Um, California, Portland's a little bit different, but like, you know, your Atlanta, your Texas, there's usually a web system in the highways. So it's usually outside of that inner web, mm-hmm. 20 minutes, 45 minutes outside the city center, sort of suburbish. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we'll focus on these garden style type of apartments, two to three stories or, you know, some of the, the newer investors will, you know, when they're starting out, we'll pick up these, you know, 1400 square foot houses, three bedroom, two baths that rent for about a thousand bucks a month that you can pick up for a hundred grand purchase price. Nice. Nice. And are you just having a property manager just manage it all? Or- oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, like our job as investors is to go make more money and go find more investments. Right? Right. The property manager's job is to manage the property, even though you have to pay them. And this is a big mistake. I think that old school mom and pa investors make, mm. they focus on being a landlord and not an investor. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember when I was in college, like the, the landlord would come around in his Mercedes and fix the toilet. while his poor wife would have to wait in the car for him <laughs> to do this nonsense. It's just too cheap to hire somebody. Mm-hmm. And, that was probably predicated by the fact that that property was not a good investment to begin with. It didn't hit the 1% rent-to-value ratio, and he had to put in his own sweat equity to mm-hmm. make the numbers work mm-hmm. or lose less money per month and gamble on appreciation. So I'm going to keep pulling you back um, to sort of these like boundary levels just because I think it's going to apply to the most people, right? So I'd be curious, you know, for people who are in some of these areas that you mentioned, right? Like... Uh, the Bay Area or Seattle, some places that you can pull down pretty high salaries, but that the 1% rule absolutely does not exist anywhere in that area. How can someone start looking in uh, geographies that that aren't near them, right? Like what are some of the tools or strategies that they can use to get, you know, maybe outer Atlanta or, or some of these other places you mentioned? Because obviously, you know, if you're living in, in one place and not in the other place, you're not going to be super familiar with the market and whatnot. Yeah, 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 you know, you're, you're, I think it's good to just spell it out there, right? Hey, dude, like out there, if you live in the Bay Area or 
all of the state of California, it ain't going to work out there. As you say out there, no bueno, <laughs> the numbers aren't going to work. Yeah. Right. You're competing with a bunch of people with unsophisticated money and just have too much money out there. It ain't going to work unless you want to gamble on appreciation. And the reason why, you know, we call it simple passive cash flow is because cash flow is king. Cash flow is keeps, keeps, is, keeps the investment prudent and conservative um, as opposed to gambling on appreciation. So, you know, the first, I mean, this is what I did. I was living in Seattle for about, a, you know, 12, 14 years. And I was doing all my whole operation out of there buying properties in Birmingham, mm-hmm. Atlanta, and Indianapolis. The, the linchpin of this is finding that property management first, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, brokers are kind of a dime as you know, they're yeah. kind of, you never trust a broker, right? <laughs> or yeah. and never trust a lending broker too. They just want you to transact so they can get their fees. Um, that property manager is the one who's actually going to be stuck with you, man, you know, managing hand in hand this, the tenant at the end of the day. So that's the, that's the linchpin in all this. Finding somebody who comes off referral, who's reliable, who's going to manage that property for you and manage the tenant relationship for you. Um, you know, we, we offer a free uh, remote investor like e-course on my website. People can, you know, they can go to simplepassacastle.com slash turnkey, get access to that for free, you know, kind of dives into like the weeds a little bit right but i think it's important if somebody's going to you know throw out thirty thousand dollars and you know most of our folks we don't go and visit the property that's a freaking waste of time Mm -hmm. right when our when our um when our time value of money is so high right and especially a lot of us only have two weeks of vacation it just doesn't make sense to go out there and do a trip i mean maybe at some point you do but this is again why we buy commodities, right? The three bedroom, two bath, 1400 square foot, you know, it's, it's not gonna be in the best area in the city, but you definitely don't wanna be it in a in kind of a lower class, class D, class C area or worse. Mm-hmm. Okay. How, do, how does one determine what, what class each area is? Is there just like a Google search or how does that work? Yeah, I mean, good, good question, right? Like, so there's not gonna be any, um, grading system. So we grade properties and neighborhoods on an A through D. I mean, we call D properties, war zone properties. Um, Your A class area is going to be the area that I'm sure all you guys, people listening like to hang out, right? It's it's the safest area. It's the hip area. Your your numbers aren't going to work there. You're not going to find the rent to value ratios to be able to work out there. Your class B are going to be more your blue collar, white collar uh, mix. It's not going to be in the best school districts. It's not going to be in the safest areas. But what you want to be looking out for are, you know, at least there's no violent crime there, right? There's going to be graffiti. There's going to be theft. But you're looking for those pockets where it's just, you know, this is where, and I think for me, it was a big culture shock, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. coming from middle-class America, most people live in B and C class type of housing Mm -hmm. where, it's relatively safe in the daytime, but you and I probably wouldn't want to be hanging out at nighttime in there. Mm-hmm. And then an even lower class is kind of that C grade. And you know, now you're talking, you know, a B class would be like 1970s, 1990s build. Mm-hmm. C class might be a threshold lower, 1950s, 1970s, mm-hmm. but in a you know rougher area mm-hmm. than the Bs. So typically the sweet spot that we'll like to buy with the optimal amount of, ca- of cash flow. And, you know, it's good, still good, safe, solid areas that kind of that B minus. 
sweet spot. I mean, luckily you're not ranching the damn thing, right? It's, you're outsourcing the poppy manager out. You never really have to go out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it sounds like there's a ton of sort of legwork that you can do or like research or uh, different resources that you can sort of tap into to get a pretty good idea of what's going on in an area without actually having to go out there and check things out. Um, I'd be curious if there, uh, I don't know this much about it, but I know there are like groups, right? Like investing groups that you can get into or be a part of. And then there's also sort of going like more solo and buying a property yourself. I'll just be curious what sort of your like opinion or experiences with, with some of these different, uh, modes of sort of investing in, in real estate. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're not an accredited investor, especially if you're under like quarter million net worth like you you're you're not really allowed to participate in a syndication or private placement um you know the the operator of the syndication really shouldn't allow you to participate right because you're just not a good investor you don't have that much money you'll probably be a pain in the butt to the operator and and this is the hard part right like like i said the hardest part is getting started that first hundred grand quarter million net worth you got to do it yourself and you got to let time kind of be your friend and have your net worth grow and, you know, supplement that with your day job. But I think, you know, something really happens early on is you start to realize how much more money you're making it this way and you have control and you stop funding all the 401ks, the Roth IRAs, you know, the wealthy don't do that type of stuff, right? That's only like the, that's the retail investment market. Um, But we've all been conditioned Otherwise, I mean, it took me like five, 10 years to find a cool to plug on my 401ks until I finally realized what it all was, but everybody moves at their own pace. But at some point, you know, you kind of pull the plug on it. You kind of go more into alternative investments, your own rental properties, or at that point, if you're higher income, maybe you can start participating in private placements or syndications. You have the network, right? You know, other peer colleagues and you know who to trust out there. Um, but that's, it's a slow transition, but, you know, for most people, you know, five to 10 years, they can get financially free doing this type of stuff. And it totally transcends the average, you know, the traditional wealth building. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I tell everybody like, look, I mean, if everybody just bought a handful of rentals, like how I did, and it doesn't take that long, maybe five years, if you're a diligent saver, mm-hmm. you probably don't have to work into your forties and, you know, but don't do that because society would probably crumble, right? If all these guys just found the quick way out of the rat race, mm-hmm. you know, who would pay all the taxes, who would build bridges, who would perform surgery on people, you know, would be a social worker, you know, like it just society wouldn't, couldn't, couldn't sustain that. Right? Yeah, definitely. I'd, I'd be curious, you know, what, what was the, I'm assuming that you're not, practicing as a civil engineer anymore maybe that's the case but like how long did you decide okay now is the time to like leave my job and just do this yeah, yeah i mean my progression was a lot slower right then mm-hmm. you know i made a lot of mistakes along the way like i would pay down my properties which you know yeah i think that's traditionally something they tell you to do which i'm going to say is completely wrong you don't want to pay oh. off your properties you always want to go with the 30-year mortgage and pay the least mm-hmm. as possible and concentrate your money to buy more and more passive mm-hmm. income generators, pigs. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did a lot of that stuff. <laughs> like it just took me longer, right? Like, uh-huh. um, it, yeah, you know, it took me 11 rentals, 2015. 
but I was a really good saver. And then there were a handful of years there that I was putting away like 80, a hundred thousand dollars a year, mm-hmm. not to that normal retirement stuff, but straight to rental properties and that really mm-hmm. sped things up for me. But, you know, when I started to buy apartment complexes and then we started to syndicate deals with other people, that was kind of the point where I need to focus on. I mean, I, I kind of traded one job for another in a way. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But as far as passive income goes, I mean, that's that's kind of the lessons I think I've learned from other people is like you're always going to keep working. You're always going to be doing something. And if you can find a way to you know, today, we, we value add apartments. We improve the communities. Like, you know, that's, you know, if, if we don't do it, who else is going to do it? Mm-hmm. And we make a whole lot of money in the process. Right. Like, I mean, what, what more ET guy can they need to get? So we've talked a lot about sort of uh, the money pieces and sort of like moving your pieces around and, and moving up and, and pieces like that. I would be curious, since this is a podcast, you know, around happiness, some of your journey as you've transitioned through these different like phases in your life, did you, do you find like now that you feel the most fulfilled? Did you love your old job? Like, I'd just be curious what some of those parts were for you. Um, yeah. So like, I, I would say like my first pivot in terms of like mindset and happiness came when I had like those 15 rentals, like those rental, 15 rentals, I and mean, they brought in maybe like three grand passive income a month, which by no means stains an American family, right? Like most people, they need 10 grand to do so. But in my head, I mean, I was in my late twenties at the time. Um, I knew I didn't have to keep working my crummy job. If I didn't have to, mm-hmm. you know, pretty soon, I mean, I could quit whenever I kind of wanted to. And I kind of, you know, I think a lot of young people or financially young people, they get to a point, there are ideas to retire and sit on the beach and do nothing. Um, I kind of did that like for a couple of months. Um, I just didn't care about work. Like, you know, just give a rip, mm-hmm. right? Like my boss told me something like, whatever, I make a little more money than you guys you know, at the end of the day, by just sitting here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I eventually changed jobs a lot. Like I would find easier, more cruise jobs and I would have a lot more time to think, you know, and that could be a good or bad thing, right? <laughs> yeah. But my my whole thought was like, you know, like a lot of people, they go around and they, like, what do you do when you're financially free? Right? You go around, you tra- yeah, you travel, you take pictures of your food put it on Instagram, stupid stuff like that. But like, it gets super old mm. after a while. If you show me somebody who keeps doing that stuff, I'll show you somebody who hasn't been financially free more than six months. Granted, you could, some people could probably, you know, do that type of nonsense for several years, but you come to a point where it's like, all right, well, you've been given this gift that most people do not get, get right. Like my parents work to their like, regular retirement age 60 70 years that doesn't mean they have enough money to retire that's most people's paradigm but here i have the rest of my life to do whatever the heck i want because the money keeps working harder for me and it's going to continue to grow i can sit on a beach drink pina coladas and take pictures of my food or you know like my life's a canvas so i mean i just kind of focus on what i was doing best that was kind of why I created like the simple passive cash flow podcast just to kind of give back and help people mm-hmm. dispel a lot of the financial dogma there that we're all kind of taught to eat. Um, mm-hmm. Because I realized that was kind of what I was passionate about. And that was why I was kind of good at, and, you know, I talked about that concept, Ikigai, right? 
Um, apparently, like, you know, when people team up and we buy an apartment together, we can make a lot of money too, right? Awesome. Um, so, but if, if I can, you know, change the people's paths from investing in the 401k nonsense, get them on alternative path and now, or like just the taxes, right? Like if we implement real estate professional status, which is a checkbox, checkbox on their taxes, now one of the spouses can stay at home and they make more money at the end of the day. They don't pay, you know, they, they, by doing that, you implement rep status. Now you can use passive losses. You get these deductions you get from real estate to offset your ordinary income. It, it's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And it's just all about being tax smart, financially minded smart, then working harder for the man. Um, but that was for me, I mean, I, I've kind of followed Tony Robbins a little bit. He always says, well, you know, you're happier or the, the thing at the top of the Maslow hierarchy of needs or his six needs, he talks a lot about is like, well, um, you know, giving back, finding a way to add value to each other. And you see a lot of rich people doing that. And, um, but that was kind of my way. Like, you know, I'm not going to be somebody who builds something habitat for humanity you know, to build stuff. <laughs> Yeah. You know, like that's, mm-hmm. I, I think you have to figure out your way to like give you know, your unique way where you can exponentially add value. Mm-hmm. If not, you can just build some houses on Saturday with habit attachment. Nothing wrong with that, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you, you know, as much as sitting on a beach and drinking pina colada sounds great, you know, it gets boring <laughs> after a while. And you, you, it's nice to be able to, work at doing something that you love that you're passionate about and contributes back to other people versus just like the average grind of having to work to to get by you you have the ability to work um because it's your passion and that's exciting and that's a a, something a lot of people don't get to experience yeah and you meet a lot of eclectic people too Mm -hmm. i mean you know, people who are kind of stuck in the day job, stuck in the matrix, haven't eaten the red pill yet. And they're cool, nice people. But, you know, when you find, you know, gunslingers who are kind of living this more aggressive entrepreneurial path or really like designing their lifestyle with endless boundaries, which sounds really corny. <laughs> like it's, it is very, um, it kind of increases the zest for life, right? There's, mm-hmm there's kind of I mean some people I mean I'm kind of see myself more of a creative I guess to me that's very enlightening when you interact with those types of people and come to find out they're free at lunch too you know like it's just the working (laughs) stiffs that have to aren't around during this time of the day right yeah Mm -hmm. cool well Lane thanks so much for for joining us on our show is there anything you'd like to plug or anything else you'd want to share before we wrap up today? Uh, no, no. If you have kind of piqued people's interest, you know, you, you got to just keep, you got to buy rental properties or, you know, if you're a little bit higher net worth, you know, syndications and private placements are probably going to be a little bit more, um, you know, based on your time, you know, but yeah, I'd say get educated, right? So society is built on you investing in these wall street products which just makes wall street rich you get these 401ks and roth iras etc um you got to get off the beaten path but you got to find a tribe which is what we've created with um, other a community of other investors and um yeah it, it it works it works that's for sure but um you got to do something a little bit different than the average bear out there 
Right. <laughs> yeah. Step outside the the normal path that most people take. And yeah, a lot of things can unfold in beautiful right. ways. Yes. Awesome, Lane. Well, thank you again so much for being on our show. Yes. Well, thanks for having me. Of course. Yes. And thank you everyone for tuning in this week. We appreciate you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to like, comment, subscribe, all the things to spread more happiness in the world. And we will see you next time. Bye guys. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Happy Talks with Dr. Allison Donovan. We hope you got something of value to help bring a little more happiness into your life. What lesson or takeaway did you get from today's episode? For more tips and tools, be sure to check out my website at dralicefong.com and you can find me on my social media handles at dralicefong. You can find me at howtohappy.com and follow me on my social media handles at howtohappy. Catch you next time. time.